I ask that you join me in the book of Luke, chapter 1, as we can continue our Advent series. So, if you remember from last week, we saw how the angels brought hope to the shepherds and to us. This week, we're going to see how this newborn king is bringing peace, since this is the week of peace, and Kevin went ahead and did half the work for me by telling you what peace was, uh, this, this sermon will be much shorter. So I'm very thankful for Kevin because he got it right. Peace in the Bible refers to wholeness or well-being as well as to political and interpersonal peace. Uh, even a, a cosmic connotation including all aspects of creation. So you might even say that a, a good way to translate the word Peace is to say harmony, um, or the Hebrew word is, is shalom, and the, and the Greek word irene. Peace is the ideal of creation, and really it's the ideal of God's redemptive activities. It's a restoration of this weary world to peace, to, harm, to harmony, or to flourishing. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 show us the ideal creation. There's peace, shalom, or harmony. And it comes as a result of Jesus' redemptive work in the future. This first advent, this coming of Jesus is just that. It is the coming of peace. You know, the, the Christmas story can seem very trite and trivial to someone, maybe an atheist or someone who comes to church only on Christmas and Easter. Because they get dropped off right in the middle of the story. They get the, the wonderful feelings of a baby in a manger. I mean, who, who doesn't have good feelings about a little baby wrapped in, in clothes, you know, cloth? Um, and then maybe the songs, right? People come because the songs are familiar. Your, your non-Christian friends or your marginally Christian friends, they know all the Christmas songs, and they'll belt them out with gusto around Christmas, and I think if we're honest, too, we, we sing without understanding. And it's pretty innocent. I mean, a little baby sounds very innocent. If it sounds very innocuous, it doesn't sound very um, startling. And I think that's one of the reasons why many people come to Christmas activities, yet never experience true peace. A lot of people come to church and they hear all this talk about peace, and then they see people in the church fighting over silliness, over little things that are so inconsequential. And there's no peace in the church, and we expect there to be peace out of the church. But not only that, in our own hearts, we fail to have peace. We ha fail to have flourishing, to have shalom. Without the background of this story, we lose the fact that Jesus Christ came to bring peace for God's people. And that's what Jesus came to do, is to give us peace. And this passage will begin to unpack the background. So last week, we were a little ahead. We came right after the birth of Jesus, and the shepherds were minding their sheep, and the angels came. And then this week, we're going to jump before his birth to John the Baptist's birth, and we're going to talk about what is happening. So if you have Luke chapter 1 and verse 
67 is where, where we'll start. And this is Zachariah's prophecy. And, and Zachariah is John the Baptist's dad, his father. Then his father, Zachariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways and to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of our God's merciful compassion. The dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate this peace, Lord, we can look at this world and see a lack of peace. We can look at our own hearts and, re and realize how unpeaceful we truly are. Father, as we contemplate this passage, I pray that you would give us understanding, that your spirit would illuminate the words of this text, that we would be gripped by the reality in here, that you have called us to follow the Prince of Peace, and that we can have peace even in the most startling circumstances. Father, what a, a gracious gift, what a blessed and merciful joy to have your light shine into a dark place, and that the shadow of death is not to be feared, because our feet are guided by the way of peace, which is your word and your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we lift up the church that will be using our building this afternoon at 2 o'clock. Uh, Lord, I pray for Pastor David as he comes and preaches the word, that his congregation would be blessed by the use of our facility as they are in between places. Lord, I pray for his people to have hearts that are transformed by the gospel as they hear the word preached carefully and clearly. God, be with us and guide us. Keep us here as we focus in on what your text has to say. Father, we love you and we thank you for your mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What a powerful statement from Zechariah. This passage is often referred to as the Benedictus because it begins with a word of praise. He is beginning to praise now, the background of Zechariah, if you remember, is Zechariah was a, a priest, and he was chosen to go into the Holy of Holies to do his, his, his work, to, to, to put the uh, incense on the altar. And he enters in, and an angel of the Lord appears, Gabriel appears, and says, you are going to have a child. And they had been bearing him and his wife, they had not had children, and so he was very shocked by this, he's an older man. Uh, and he kind of maybe questioned a little bit, and the Lord struck him mute and dumb. 
he was unable to speak. And so for nine months, Zechariah has been holding his peace. Now, I don't know about you, but not being able to speak for nine months seems pretty significant. And I, I'm kind of of the persuasion that he also was unable to hear any sound. And so I think that he was in complete silence. He had complete peace, if you will. And what was he thinking about for those nine months? I, I would hope that he's thinking about the significance of the birth of his own son and also the coming Messiah that was promised. And the minute he's able to speak, he doesn't say, let me tell you, dear, how many times I'm annoyed with you. Right? He doesn't go off on a tangent. Instead, he begins to praise God. And this is what comes out of his mouth. And this is so significant to us because Zechariah prophesies about the plan of salvation. He talks about the prophet of salvation and then the peace of salvation. So if you're a note taker, you recognize that the prophet of salvation, the, excuse me, the plan of salvation, the prophet of salvation, and the peace of salvation are the main points of this message. So if you are a young person in this room learning how to take notes for the first time, Edward and Silas in particular, you should be writing this down so you know the main points of this message. Or you can look at the back of the bulletin. We see that Jesus Christ is God's plan of salvation. John the Baptist is, of course, the prophet of salvation, and then he is pointing to the peace of salvation in Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the salvation for God's people. Look at verse 68 with me. Verse 68 says, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. As Zacharias is beginning, Zachariah is beginning to, to praise God for the beginning of this promised salvation, the first steps. In fact, he begins to outline some important points for us, some, some landmarks or some handholds in God's plan of salvation. So if you don't understand this whole story of Christ, you don't maybe have a grip on the entirety of this message. Right? What's the big deal about a baby being born? Even though it's born to a virgin, that's, that's quite spectacular. But what's the point? What's the emphasis? We see that God has brought redemption. He has brought a change, a, a redeeming, a restoration, but so much more. We have this word visitation here in verse 68 because he has visited and provided redemption. And then we have this word for redemption, or excuse me, salvation in verse 30, or 69. Luke uses the word salvation more than any other gospel writer when he is referring to Jesus. So this is an important thing that we want to recognize that redemption, visitation, salvation, they're all connected in this. So how do you have peace? Well, it comes through redemption, salvation, and through visitation. Zechariah prophesies in song about the plan of salvation and about its historical and comprehensive nature. So the first thing we see is the historical nature of this redemption. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Have you ever wondered why that's in there? What in the world are they talking about? 
a horn of salvation. Well, you know that it's a common metaphor for an animal's strength. What makes an animal strong is their horns. The, the thicker, the bigger the horn, the more mature that animal is, typically. And this, this horn is referring to Jesus. You would think that Zechariah, the first thing he would proclaim would be about his newborn son. But no, he's pointing to Christ. And so this horn is Jesus Christ. And 1 Samuel 2.10 gives us the picture. It says, Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed, his Messiah, his chosen one, will be lifted up. We have the prophets that spoke in verse 70. It says, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, this coming king, this anointed one, this child, this baby is the long-expected Jesus. This is the long-expected salvation. This is the horn of salvation that will be raised up. The kings that oppose him will be crushed in the end. Think about that for a minute. What have we to fear of kings, of presidents, of governors, of anything against Christ? There's nothing that can stand against him. And so we see a prophetic fulfillment here in the birth of Christ. This is important, that the prediction, the prophecy that God said this will happen has come true. So if you don't understand the importance of a baby being born to a virgin, it's because you don't understand the entire historical nature of this birth. So if you're new to the Christian faith or you haven't really thought about this, imagine how many prophecies it would take or how hard it would be to make this prophecy come true. Uh, the, I, was, I was reading um, a, a story about Back to the Future. How many of you have seen the movie Back to the Future? Right In Back to the Future, by the year of 2010 or I think five or six, I can't remember the exact year, they had flying cars and flying skateboards and all that. Right? They prophesied, and this, was, this movie was made back in the 70s, 80s, and they prophesied that in the year 2000, and I, think, I really think it was like 2015, but they, they predicted that we would have all these things, and they got it wrong. Yet 400 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah said, this is how it's going to happen. And it did happen. That's pretty significant that we can't even make a prophecy of 30, 40 years to come true and 400 years of time. And then verse 73, we have this remembrance, excuse me, 72, he has dealt mercifully with our ancestors. Remember that, that Abraham had faith and it was counted to him as righteousness. And therefore, the fulfillment of what Abraham had been hoping for has come to be. Verse 72, he has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear. Genesis 17.4, it says, As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. God had cut a covenant with Abraham 
promising a certain seed would proceed from him and the nations would bow. The coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of historical prophecy, and this sure salvation that was promised by God has now arrived. So when you think about little baby Jesus, innocent in his manger, realize that this is thousands upon thousands of years of history making its arrival, making its fulfillment. The long-expected time of the Messiah is now here. But the plan of salvation is also comprehensive. As you look at verses 71 and 72, and then, then looking at 74 through 75, you see this entirety of the salvation. It's comprehensive because it's, it's politically charged. It's physically uh, involved and spiritually effective. Politically, in verse 71, it says salvation from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us. Now, this is less of a political or nationalistic deliverance, but more as an Old Testament description of personal salvation from sin and judgment. As you read about Ezekiel and you see what he talks about, the promises there, we see a salvation that comes individually and personally as well. But we have physically here in verse 74, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, that we would serve him without fear. If you compare this verse with Psalm 97.10, the rescue is a rescue from the power of the enemies. Though we are physically killed, we live forever with Christ. The, the enemy has no power. Death has no more Sting. There's nothing that anyone can do to us. I love how Paul says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Right? There's, there's nothing that you can do. I mean, and if you think about Paul, he's quite the annoying character. The Romans, they, they capture him. They say, okay, well, we're going to kill you. And he goes, okay, to, live, to, to die is gain. Praise the Lord. I'll be with my, my, my Savior. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to keep you alive and, and imprison you. And he goes, okay, well, to live is gain, and I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. Right? There, there's nothing that is going to cause him fear. So he can serve the Lord without fear. That's what Christ does to us. And then spiritually in verse 72, 74, and 75, God remembers his covenant, this synonymous parallelism. It's, it's not a new religion, but a, a fulfillment of his covenantal promises. And he does that for a purpose, verse 74, so that we can serve him without fear, so that we can worship God without fear. We can worship in holiness and righteousness, in holiness and righteousness in his presence all of our days. The presence of the Lord brings salvation. And if you remember from your reading of Scripture in the Old Testament, the Lord's presence had not returned to the temple when they returned. This, this temple that was built did not have the presence of the Lord. There was no presence. And so the Israelites were longing for the coming of God's presence to be with his people. And this is what we see happening here. And the purpose of this salvation is so that we would be made capable to worship, 
to have peace with God through Jesus Christ in the power of his spirit is the goal, is the purpose of Christ's coming. If you ever had to pick up something heavy, you would recognize the need for handholds. If there's no way to grip something, it is much more difficult to actually lift, and you really won't be able to lift as much if there's no handholds. In the same way, we need the Old Testament as handholds. For us to grasp God's plan of salvation, we need to, to be fully informed of the entire story. The reason is we need to know our need for a Savior. Let, let's stop for a minute and think about that. If you see baby Jesus lying in a manger and you get good, gushy feelings, that's not faith. If you realize that this is the long-expected Jesus that we have been placing our hope for, that you put your trust in and provides peace that passes understanding, that's where faith begins. It's, it's not a, a good, peaceful feeling when everything is going right. No, it's peace in chaos, as Kevin said so clearly. It's the ability to rejoice even when you're suffering. It's the ability to praise him even when you're sick. We can't have true peace apart from Christ. You know, there's a, there's a big difference between knowing the plan of salvation versus experiencing the plan. That can be the difference between true peace and a ceasefire. If you are like me, before you trust something, you like to get your hands on it. You have to experience it firsthand. The plan of salvation, it sounds really great in theory, and many people, I think, acknowledge its value, even its power. Maybe they've even seen lives transformed by the gospel, yet they personally are not experiencing peace. I think it's an important question to ask this morning is, are you experiencing peace? What does that even look like? Think about your week. What was it that unsettled you? What was it that made you mad? What was it that disturbed you? I was doing my devotions um, this week, and one morning I, I got was really excited about meditating on Scripture. I was reading the Psalms. I was having this great time. And I walked out, and the dog had peed on the tire of my truck in my garage. And I got angry. That peace that I had experienced, I was praising the Lord. I was so happy. And then it was completely destroyed by some dog who decided to pee. That was it. That's all it took to disrupt my peace. So how do we have peace? How do we have peace that lasts? Maybe the question should be, can we have peace in this life? Will we ever have perfect peace? Or is it something that we strive for day by day, minute by minute? 
disciples were extremely confused at Jesus' death. They misunderstood the plot, didn't they? They said, what is going on? And they all scattered when this happened. They were shocked that the peace bringer was put to death by the hands of mere humans. Their peace was disrupted. But then upon his resurrection, they began to ask about the coming kingdom. And they said, is it time yet? Is it time yet? And Jesus said, not yet for the full restoration of all things. The disciples needed to understand the whole picture. That while salvation has come and individuals are being saved into a people, the fullness has not yet arrived. We still live in a corrupted world. We still have dogs that pee. We still have sin that lingers. We have the sin in us, and we have the sin in others. People treat us poorly, and we treat others poorly. We still experience sin and suffering in this life. That doesn't mean that the salvation has failed. That doesn't mean that peace is not available, only that we must endure until the second advent, until fulfillment of all hope and all peace has come. Now, Zechariah shifts to his son and the role that he will play in this plan. What about John the Baptist? What about the son that Zechariah just had? And he talks about the prophet of salvation. And I'm not going to spend significant time on the prophet of salvation uh, this, this week. So we moved from the past tense. As you look at the words here in 76, you see a change in grammar. He moves from the past tense to the present tense. He begins to point out John and his role as the prophet of salvation. And it's not so much as being called a prophet as in that he's going to be, um, he's going to fulfill the role of a, of a prophet. Look at 76. And he says, a new child will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. The prophet of salvation prepares the way. John is going to come and soften the ground. He is going to explain what is happening. The prophet of salvation, his job is to point to Jesus. He will point the way through forgiveness of sins. This knowledge that he brings is deeply experiential. It brings about a response, and it also points to salvation. Look at verse 77. To give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. John's, John the Baptist's role was to help people see Christ. He was pointing to Christ to bring a, a, a response that is more spiritual than just political. Zechariah 13.1 says, On that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sins and impurity. You know, it's obvious that we humans can be pretty hard-headed and hard-hearted. Sometimes it takes a lot to soften us up and to get the point across. Sometimes it takes a dog peeing on our truck to help us realize that we're not so perfect after all. God uses a lot to get our attention, and God would commonly use prophets to break up hard-hearted Israelites and soften the ground for the seed of truth to be planted. 
Think about what it takes to plant a field. You can buy a bunch of seed and walk out into your yard and throw it on the ground, and the reality is it doesn't likely grow. The Israelites had to experience a lot of affliction and pain and suffering in order to be ready to receive the Messiah. They had to be subjugated to an enemy empire, to the Romans. They had to to sit underneath different rulers who were not friendly to their religion in order for true growth to happen. I think as Christians, we are called to point to Jesus. The suffering we experience is used by God to point others to him. So just like John the Baptist's ministry was not one of glamour or even being liked, John was not everybody's best friend. But instead, he had a desert ministry that led to his beheading. We are also called to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. You as a believer, you're called to tell other people about the way of salvation. You are called to this, and you're not going to be liked. And as more and more our country goes the way that it's going, you are not going to be liked. I hope you're ready. I hope you're getting ready. And it's not going to be that they're going to say, oh, you're so bold and you you really love the gospel and you love Jesus. No, they're going to say, you're a bigot. You're a racist. You're judgmental. That's what you're going to get faced with. They're going to say, you're a hypocrite because you're a sinner. Those are the words that you're going to hear from people. It's not going to be, oh, you guys are so, you just love Jesus too much. They're going to say, no, you, you hate Jesus because you don't affirm what we affirm. That's what's going to be said about you. Are you ready? Zechariah then points to where peace is found in verses 78 through 79. The peace of salvation, and this is really the, the whole point. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace because he brings peace. He restores what is broken. He helps harmonize what was unharmonized. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. The peace that Jesus brings is an act of mercy. Look at verse 78. It says, Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us. God shows his compassion, his love for us, by sending Jesus to provide peace. Now, if you really want to nerd out, literally, it says the bowels of God's unfailing mercy. I kind of like how this is translated, but this is the, but that's the, the literal, the bowels of God's unfailing mercy. Peace with God is not possible any other way. No one is able to work their way to heaven. The importance of Mary being a virgin when she conceived and gave birth to Jesus is that Jesus' human nature was not corrupted by sin like the rest of us. He was a gift, a new and better Adam. The path of peace is found in no one else. I want to ask you a question. How are you pursuing peace? 
What ways are you looking for peace? Is it through entertainment? Is it through getting rid of all the dogs that pee on your truck? What, what do you do to pursue peace? Is it your circumstances? Maybe you, you want to control every part of your circumstances. You want the government to not interfere with what you want. And so that is how you pursue peace. Are you, are you pursuing your peace in a political sense? Are you pursuing peace in an entertainment sense? Are you pursuing peace in um, changing of your circumstances? How are you pursuing peace? Because if you're not pursuing peace through Jesus Christ, you will not have peace. Your conscience will continue to accuse you. You will continue to be miserable. You will not find happiness. This is not a a pull yourself up by the bootstraps type of message. Peace is found only in Jesus Christ. How are you doing that? Are you spending more time watching Netflix than pursuing peace? Are you spending more time gossiping about your neighbor than seeking of ways to edify and build them up? Are you building your own kingdom in this church and seeking for ways to make yourselves more popular or well-known? Is your kingdom come your main prayer in the mornings? Maybe your will be done. How are you pursuing peace? I know for me, pride gets in the way of my peace. I get annoyed when someone interrupts my quiet time. But if I'm pursuing peace, if I'm pursuing Christ, I can put up with interruptions. But the minute I start to to drift away from the pursuit of peace through, through the word, if I'm not pursuing Christ and in, in, in reading his word, I'm grumpy because I'm trying to control my environment. It's a complete act of mercy that we even have any peace. That takes you out of the equation. The fact that you have any peace at all is a mercy of the Lord. And even when I'm actively pursuing Christ, it's very easy for my eyes to drift off of him. And so the fact that I get any peace at all is a, is a form of mercy. The fact that I can enjoy what the Lord has given me now is an act of mercy. And because of this act of mercy, dawn from on high will visit us. It repeats the same language of visit, but this time it's in the future tense rather than in the past tense. The word for visit carries the connotation of looking after someone. It's like a hospital visit. Um, the, the visitation with an intent of doing some good. Like a, visit, a physician who makes a house call on someone. Look at, at this, this end of verse 78. It says, because our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us. Mixed with the imagery of a dawning light. God's light has come into the world to visit us in such a way that God's compassionate care is made known. Acts 15.14 uses the same word for visitation and it's translated intervened. Acts 15.14, Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. 
We were on the highway to hell. We were on a path of destruction. The world was going to hell in a handbasket, right? That is the direction we were headed. And yet God intervened. And his invasion was in the form of an infant, a baby, the most defenseless creature on the planet. Have you ever seen a horse uh, give birth to a pony? That pony can jump up and start running right away. A human baby takes like three years before they can even feed themselves and not even start going to the bathroom in the right place. Right? An innocent child is what God used to redeem a people to himself. Who does this visitation light shine on? Well, those who live in darkness and the shadow of death. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 9 and also in uh, 60, we have a, a similar language. Isaiah 9, 2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. And then Isaiah 60, 2-3 says, For look, darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to your shining brightness. Light has shone in the darkness. But what is the purpose of this light? Well, we see that at the end of 79. So verse 79, Zechariah says that this, this dawn from on high will visit us to shine on us, on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death. And the purpose is mentioned at the very end of 79. To guide our feet into the way of peace. To get peace... You must follow Jesus. The path is available for us now. Thanks be to God. The peace of salvation is found through Jesus, but it not only is found through Jesus, but it also guides us into the way of making peace with God. But also keeps us in a relationship with God. So not only are we justified, we're saved, but we're also sanctified. We're being made holy. Now, personally, I've only glimpsed a very small bit of inner peace. Just a small taste. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It doesn't say, taste and be satiated. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It begins to cause us to pursue it. In fact, it's something that we have to fight hard to get. Doesn't that sound kind of contrary? We have to fight for peace because anything can disrupt it. I have found that when I am regularly spending time pursuing Jesus by reading the word and praying, I get a sense of deep peace. But if I'm only half-hearted in my Bible reading, if I only spend a week or two and then I'm distracted, and I begin to feel very out of sorts. I feel stressed and distant from my Lord. But I'm reminded by Isaiah 26.3. It says, The steadfast of mind will keep in perfect peace. You will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. The, the way that we have perfect peace is by trusting in Christ. When the world is falling apart, when there's wars and rumors of wars, we can have perfect peace 
by trusting in our Christ. I don't know of any other way to do this than focusing on my mind on studying Jesus, the perfect way of peace. So this is the Christmas story. Jesus Christ is God's plan of salvation. John the Baptist will be God's prophet of salvation, pointing to the peace of salvation. And you can have this peace today through Jesus Christ. This week, I really would want to encourage you to meditate on what it means for Jesus to be the Prince of Peace. Put that in your mind this week. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Prince of Peace? Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, as we end our time worshiping you, the, the, the one who loves us enough to send your dear Son, the Prince of Peace. Father, we know that left to our own devices, we are headed in a terrible direction, into a time of war, a time of destruction. But yet you have given us an opportunity to have true peace through your dear Son. Father, as we approach the celebration of the first advent, the first coming of the King, God, I ask that you help us to not be distracted by all the chaos of the world, but to have peace that passes under all understanding, peace that comes directly from you, that is a mercy, that is, that is all of you, that is compassionate. Lord, we thank you for your mercy to us on that one fateful night where your dear son was born on earth that your presence became our hope and our peace, our joy, and our love. We ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ and all God's people said, Amen.